Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. I'm so glad you're here on the channel that loves atheists. But today it's a topic that transcends the discussion uh, between Christians and atheists and other worldviews. And we're talking about the subject of abortion and whether abortion is a healing practice or the killing of a human being, a human person, in fact. And as we do that, we're going to take a look at a debate uh, between Stephanie Gray Connors and Malcolm Potts on Matt Frad's channel, which is called Pints with Aquinas, which is a Catholic apologetics channel. In fact, I've really come to like Matt Frad. I don't know if you'll see this, Matt, but if you do, let me know because I've become uh, a fan of your channel. We differ on Catholicism, of course, and that's not a small disagreement, but I I love the channel. And um, this was a good debate. This was a very helpful debate. And I don't think it went well for the person defending the pro-choice position or defending the practice of abortion. We're not going to spend too much time uh, at the beginning of this, but we're going to jump right into it. For those that are new to the channel, I will say this much. This is an issue that is close to my heart because when my uh, parents, when my mother was pregnant with me, my father has a rare genetic blood disease uh, called von Willebrand's, and the doctor strongly encouraged my mother to have an abortion. And she uh, obviously wasn't going to do that, and they went to another doctor. Unfortunately, the doctor that suggested the abortion was uh, supposedly a professing Christian. And he said, kid's not going to live very long because this particular genetic blood disease gets worse with each generation. If your child has it, he won't live very long and you'll just be miserable and sad and all those kind of things. They went to another doctor who actually was a Muslim. And that doctor said, if the child lives for five minutes, it'll be to the glory of God. I'm, I'm sad that that's the paradigm instead of the other way around or, or that no doctor recommended abortion. Rather, that'd be the best thing. But, um, but it was the case. My parents had several churches praying that I would not have my father's blood disease, and I don't. And my daughters don't. And so I could have easily been aborted. And so this is an issue that's close to my heart. It's also close to my heart because I'm about as certain of um, the arguments against abortion as uh, anything in philosophy and reasoning. So um, we're going to go ahead and jump in and listen uh, to a somewhat lengthy clip from Stephanie as we begin this. But I want you to hear her talking a little bit about this issue of what it means to, uh, at what point is um a collection of cells, an embryo, let's say, a fertilized egg, a new human being. We need to consider whether with the preborn we're dealing with human beings. And so I want to move to that now in order to substantiate my claim that abortion is wrong. To begin this part, what I'd like to do is ask us to consider in our own hearts if we're people who believe in human rights. I certainly believe in human rights. I'd like us to then consider, well, who would get human rights? And the obvious answer is humans get human rights. Because if women get women's rights and children get children's rights, 
what matters when it comes to human rights and who gets them is that the individual fits into the category of human. So then the next question we want to ask ourselves is this, when do human beings begin their lives? Because if we believe in human rights and if we acknowledge humans get those rights, then the moments humans begin, the moment humans begin, is the moment that we have the right to life. So when do human beings begin their lives? Well, to answer that question, I point people to an excellent paper called When Does Human Life Begin? by scientist and professor Dr. Maureen Kondik. And in this paper, she talks about life beginning at fertilization, and in particular, at the beginning of the process of fertilization. Because fertilization takes about 24 hours. But she makes an excellent scientific case for life beginning at the start of that 24-hour period by focusing in particular on two things. She says, when scientists want to distinguish whether one cell is different from another cell, they look at two criteria, cell composition and cell behavior. In other words, what is it made up of and what does it do? If you look at the sperm cell, its composition is the genetic material of the father, different then from the egg cell because its composition is the genetic material of the mother. You look at the behavior of a sperm. It's to swim around, find an egg, and penetrate it. You look at the behavior of an egg, very different from a sperm. It sits and allows for penetration. So we can see the sperm and the egg are different by looking at composition and behavior. Well, let's also now consider the one cell embryo or zygote in contrast to the sperm and the egg cell. If we look at cell composition and behavior, we can see how the zygote at fertilization is substantively different from the sperm and the egg. The composition of, this, of the zygote is the genetic material of the mother and the father. Even before the chromosomes have intermingled, nonetheless, at the moment of sperm egg fusion, that one cell embryo contains the genetic material from both parents, making it substantively different from the sperm and the egg based on composition. Now let's look at cell behavior. If you look at the very nature of the one-celled zygote, if another sperm comes along as the first sperm came to the egg, and a sperm tries to penetrate the one-cell embryo the way a sperm tried to penetrate the egg, the embryo behaves differently from the other two cells. It creates this zone or wall around it that prevents penetration. So by behavior and by composition, we know at fertilization we're dealing with something new. The genetic material that each of us has, our own blueprint, that distinguishes us from our mother, our father, and every single human being unless we have identical twins, that is determined at the moment of sperm egg fusion. And from that point forward, we change what we look like and what we're able to do. But our essential nature remains the same. Okay, so our essential nature remains the same. What changes is uh, we just develop and, what, and, and, and that sort of thing. This actually <clears throat> brings to mind one of the best arguments, I think, against abortion. Um, and so that one, of the, one of the ways people approach this, so she's shown you here that it is, we're talking about a human being at the moment 
of conception. In fact, there's not really much of a disagreement about this among even pro-choice advocates who know what they're talking about. Peter Singer, for example, said, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived of human sperm and egg is a human being. It's as simple as that. It's not up for, that's the part that's not really up for debate at all among people who know what they're talking about when you uh, come to this issue. You have, I mean, what is it? It's, it you have human, um, you have male human biological material. You have female human biological material that comes together and makes new human biological material. And so you have a new human being. So the question really becomes, and they don't get it into this by, by name so much in this discussion, is at what point does this new human being achieve personhood? At what point can we call it a new person? And that's a philosophical question. That is not a scientific question. Now, I am going to get into more of the details of this debate specifically. And so for those of you who've heard me, um, you've watched my videos on this subject before, you've, you've probably heard me outline this. But real quickly, I want to give you, I think Stephen Schwartz put together what is, in my opinion, the best case against abortion that has ever been outlined uh, for people to remember and use. Now, th this doesn't address the bodily autonomy uh, part of this, which is one way that people argue uh, for the pro-choice position. But it does address the issue of personhood and whether or not we are killing a human being, killing a person. And it fits really nicely with what Stephanie has just said. So S, so he gives this argument SLED, S-L-E-D. It's an acrostic. Each letter stands for something else. And these are supposed to be the four different ways in which uh, an embryo at any stage is different than a fully grown adult human being after they're born, right? Because they're fully grown adult. There are only these four ways. And so the question is, which one are you going to use to discriminate against the embryo? All right? You have to pick one. That These are the only differences. These are the only relevant differences between an embryo and an adult human being. So the S in the word sled is for size. If we are to determine that the unborn are not persons because of their size, i.e. they are only a small collection of cells rather than a full-grown adults, then the argument of the pro-choicer proves too much. The claim would amount to saying that the smaller human life is, the less it should be considered a person. Thus, short people are less whole persons than tall people. My wife would, be, uh, would, be, would object to the notion that because she is head and shoulders less tall than I am, she is less of a complete person. I actually prefer petite women, so I would object on preference anyway. Yet we all know that the size of a human life does not dictate the degree of personhood. In other words, outside of the womb, people are varying sizes. So how can you base, how can you base the abortion being legitimate or morally permissible uh, based on the size? Well, that wouldn't work. And most people wouldn't say that it would work. L is for level of development, and many people do use this one. A common pro-choice claim is that since the unborn are not just small, but collections of cells, that they are not actually persons. In other words, they are less developed. They are not totally developed human life, but merely potentially totally developed human life. The problem is that what can, be, what can only be meant 
here is that the unborn are potential adult humans, but not yet adult or fully developed. However, this again would prove far too much. My eight-year-old daughter is also not a fully uh, developed adult human. uh, My 12-year-old, I should start with my 12-year-old. This is from a blog article I wrote that's on my website at trinityradio.org. You can go check it out. And my daughters have aged since here. So let's say my uh, my 12-year-old daughter is also not a fully developed adult human. She is a potential adult human. Her level of development is at a reasonably early stage. Is she less of a person? Clearly not. In fact, my eight-year-old daughter is even less developed than my 12-year-old. The level of development has nothing to say about personhood, and we all know that. So that's out. E is, and by the way, that goes all the way back to the, the moment of conception. All right. E is for environment. And this actually comes up in this debate, and she kind of points this out. Um, the most used response in favor of abortion is that the unborn are not persons because of their environment. They are in the womb rather than outside of the womb because of this unusual location. They are said to be potential persons, but not actual persons. The problem is that in no other aspect of life, do we consider someone less of a person because of their location? Are Africans less persons in the eyes of North Americans because they are in a different environment? Does one status of personhood change based on which room of a building they are inhabiting? Naturally, the answer is of course not. In fact, in this very debate, we're not going to play the clip, but Stephanie actually asked a really important question that he kind of waves off as silliness, I guess. And that is that, okay, if we had a procedure where we could take a child that's in the womb, out of the womb, and then do some procedure, perhaps some medical treatment, and put it back in the womb again, could is it is the case that the child could be killed, could be aborted before you do the procedure to, to take it out of the womb, but then it couldn't be aborted while it was out of the womb. But then when you put it back in the womb again, now it can be aborted again. Do you see how ridiculous this is? And if your response is, well, that would only be in in late term type situations and perhaps you're against late term sort of situations. But remember, as technology develops, we could probably do a procedure like that much earlier. So this just causes all kinds of problems. The environment does not dictate whether someone is a person. D in SLED is for degree of dependence. Since the unborn are dependent on the mother for survival via nutrients, amniotic fluid, etc., the pro-choicers often imply that they are not persons and it is okay to terminate them at the will of the mother, who is, after all, supplying the means of which the unborn survive. But what about the disabled, the elderly, inhabiting assisted living facilities, or anyone else who depends on others for survival? Do they also cease to be persons upon developing such needs? The answer is no, they do not. And so for these reasons, I don't think we can discriminate against the unborn because the only these are the only differences the ones that are outlined in sled size level of development environment degree of dependence and so you wouldn't discriminate against born people on the basis of those things why can you discriminate against them based on those things when they're in the womb doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense now from there um dr malcolm potts objects to stephanie's use of certain terminology throughout this entire debate about the unborn namely she calls them unborn children or unborn babies and he does he he, but here's the thing he doesn't deny that those that's technically correct she calls him on this says am i technically wrong this is an unborn child an unborn baby and he actually admits in the clip i'm about to play that that it's not that she's technically wrong but he doesn't like the terminology because it can be persuasive This is the most odd thing I've ever heard in a debate. Don't use that terminology because you might persuade everyone you're right. Um, If you don't believe me, let's just go ahead and listen to what the clip says. Okay, um, let's 
look again at, at, at words. Um, I admit that semantically preborn child um, is accurate, but most people don't use it. One of the things about language is he... Okay, so he admits that it's accurate, but he just says most people don't use it. ...tend to use the words that other people use and they understand. So um, you tend to, to, to take um, words like preborn child, which most of society doesn't use, in order to make the discussion as emotional as possible. Now, I agree that this is a difficult topic and I can be emotional about it, but I think it's better to use technical terms um, and, and again for our audience um, there may be if we've got a big audience there may be a woman listening to us who is early in pregnancy and is wondering whether she wants that pregnancy to continue or not if she's listening about pre-born children she may go down one avenue if she's listening to me talking about embryos and trying to describe that absolutely fascinating awesome complicated object which will grow into a fully mature complete human being but it's incomplete it's shifting the cells around it doesn't have all the cells yeah so this is the the, the strangest thing to me you're not technically wrong in using that language he says but if you say that there might be somebody listening who you convince but if they hear what I have to say and the way I talk about a, um, you know, an embryo and use technical language like that, then th then they th then they might be convinced by me. And so, you know, we've we've got to, you know, don't use that language, preborn child, preborn baby. It's not that you're wrong. It's just that I don't want people to hear you say that. Now, he does give one other thing. He says it's emotionally charged language. I'm sorry, this is an emotionally charged debate. And one thing that she does point out in, in, in the debate somewhere is. He's saying that she's being emotional by using the technically correct terms. But yet um, he's emotional in that if you watch the debate, he lays out several human interest stories that have to do with abortion that are very emotionally charged. I think his second rebuttal or something or his first rebuttal is entirely that or mostly anyway. So he's using emotional language here. Um, he just doesn't like that. She's using using technically correct emotionally charged language. I think that's a that's a very interesting thing that needs to be pointed out. In fact, if you want to see how he uses terminology to make the debate seem more plausible from his perspective, listen to what he says about what abortion is and what the um, embryo is. We would sometimes take the egg and put it somewhere else in the body. The egg is like cancer. It's not a little fragile thing in a delicate uterus to be looked after. The uterus actually is one of the few organs in the body that can resist in um, metastasis of, of cancers, except at the time of, of ovulation. This is not a joke, but it's revealing. A fertilized egg grows more rapidly in the testis than in any other organ we can find. It destroys the testis, it grows so rapidly. It is a very aggressive, cancerous-like um, object. Okay, now I know that he's making a point about how rapidly it grows. I get that. But notice that he's used, he's said it's cancerous. It's, it's in the way that it functions. It's like a cancer. Okay, now I don't think he's, try, he's intentionally calling it can, a cancer. He's just trying to describe how aggressive it is. But that terminology is, is out there. He's setting it up, as you'll see in a moment. And I'm not saying that this was like that he had a strategy for this. Uh, but when he says it's like a cancer, and then let's hear what he says next. And it is early reproduction 
is associated with an enormous number of abnormalities. This is not a beautiful DNA blueprint that produces a beautiful hiccuping baby nine months later. And abortion is a necessary, safe, healing process. Abor okay, it's like a cancer, and abortion is a necessary, safe, healing process. Abortion is a healing process. It's a healing process. Because if spontaneous abortions did not happen, then if I may, with Stephanie, I'm delighted you are pregnant and I wish you every happiness. It's the most wonderful experience you can have. It is possible, we're talking intellectually, that your embryo might be abnormal. If it is, it's highly likely that the uterus will expel it as a spontaneous abortion. Because abortion is a way in which nature, Darwinian evolution, deals with abnormalities. A common abnormality is to have three chromosomes, identical th chromosomes instead of two. So Down syndrome, you have three copies of chromosome 17. It gives you this nice. Most Down syndrome are spontaneously aborted. One or two are not. If a woman asks me to do what nature failed to do and she wishes it, I will, with great comfort, abort a Down syndrome when it's been um, diagnosed in a pregnant woman if she wants it. So um, I see abortion as a necessary healing process. It's a healing process. And whole of human reproduction will be totally different. The earlier you are in pregnancy, the more likely it is. Yeah, he, he goes on there. So, so the, here's the thing. What I want you to see here is it's like a cancer. And this is a healing process. And all we're doing is what the body does sometimes naturally on its own. Okay, well, some, so some, something is natural. It's okay. Is that right? Because there's a lot of things that happen naturally. And she makes this point in the debate that are not okay. Naturally, some people die of hunger. Is it okay then to starve someone? I mean, you see that this is this is where this thinking goes. Just because it's natural doesn't mean you can. And the real problem is what we're what we're saying is yes, we know that that the, that not every pregnancy takes, not every fertilized egg takes. We get that. The problem is what we're objecting to is the active, intentional killing of a human being. That's what we're trying to fo focus on. That's what we're looking of a person, no less. And so. Um, that's the problem. Now, what I think is so interesting is he looks at this thing and uses the term cancerous. And even if all he was trying to say, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that all he meant by that was to describe how aggressively it grows. He still said it was cancerous and then said that abortion is a healing process. Now, before we talk more about the healing process, healing from what? Well, healing from pregnancy, right? <laughs> As if that's an, an illness. But then secondly, um, the, the example he gives is Down syndrome. Why do you want to kill Down syndrome babies? Why is that a good thing? And I, somewhere in the debate, he makes it clear. I'm not saying that I want Down syndrome babies to be killed, but if they're in the womb and that's what the mother wants, he'll happily do it because it's a healing process. Listen, there are many wonderful, wonderful Down syndrome people in the world in every, uh, you know, all, doing all kinds of interesting jobs, including in Hollywood and including in um, the service industry and including in other ways and places. It's, I don't understand this idea that if someone's Down syndrome, that we got to get rid of, we got to, we need to make sure that doesn't take. What is, I mean, that's pretty, 
That's pretty nasty if you ask me. Now, someone might say, well, but they might not be able, the parent might not be able to take care of a Down syndrome. It might be a huge sacrifice and all those kinds of things. How to, hand, how to manage someone who has a particular disability or a particular condition is a completely separate question from can you kill them? And that's an important um, feature of this, I think. But anyway, he says he, this is a healing process. Now, interestingly, she actually described, maybe in her opening statements, what happens in these abortions. I want you to listen to what this wonderful healing process is like. We would sometimes take the egg and put it somewhere Whoops. else. You know, the vast majority of abortions, I'll admit, happen in the first three months of pregnancy. And the common surgical procedure at that point would be a uh, vacuum aspiration or um, DNC abortion. And that procedure involves a suction tube being inserted into the uterus that causes the baby to be pulled apart. The tiny preborn child whose heart was beating at three weeks, uh, my own child's heart has just started beating. The tiny preborn child whose brain waves were detected at six weeks, six weeks, the suction tube pulls that baby's body parts. Now hold on, don't don't be upset by this. Don't be bothered by this. This is a healing thing. Remember, this is a healing therapeutic treatment. This is not. This is not. This is not anything to feel bad about. This is this is a healing thing. Piece by piece, the child is decapitated, dismembered. I know that sounds really bad, but remember, it's a healing process. And disemboweled. It's a healing process. Don't feel upset about this. It's a healing process. If we look at later abortions, you have a D&E abortion, dilation and evacuation. And in that case, forceps are inserted and clamped down on whatever the abortionist feels, and then he pulls out whatever comes, perhaps an arm, and then he puts the forceps in again and clamps down. Now, I know that sounds barbaric. It sounds like something that would have happened centuries ago and not representative of our modern advanced society, but don't feel that way. Just remember, what is it? Say it out loud as a mantra, make yourself feel better. It's a healing process. Pulls out, maybe there's a leg, and this keeps happening until all the parts are removed. And if we're talking about parts, if we're talking about arms and legs, we're clearly talking about a human being. Yes, we clearly are. And that, you know, who's it healing for? Healing for the baby? Clearly not. Healing for the mother? I mean, presumably, but what, ha I mean, you, healing her from a normal function of her body, which is pregnancy? Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that pregnancies can go horribly wrong with our first daughter and things go a lot worse than this. But my daughter's head was laying on one of my wife's kidneys and she had a kidney stone all at the same time. It, she said it's still the worst pain. It was far worse pain than when she actually gave birth. She said it was the worst pain she's ever experienced. It was nightmarish pain. OK, so I'm not. And obviously I haven't experienced that. But here's the thing. Uh, th th though those complications can happen. Pregnancy itself, in principle, is not an illness you, that you need to kill a baby to be healed of. It's, it, it's a natural function. He's all about natural functions. That's a natural function. Um, all right. Well, let's move on from that because um, I think the point has been made. Now, I, I do want to point out that there is a point during uh, Dr. Potts' uh, presentation that he actually brings up the Bible. Now, it should be, I want you to hear me say this, Internet. Do not miss this. Lots of people think and comment on my posts and my tweets that, oh, well, this is because you're a religious person. This is because you're a religious person. 
here's the thing. This is a case that I think can be made insofar as anybody accepts the importance of morality, whether you think it's subjective or objective at all. I think this is a case that can be made without necessarily bringing in religious stuff. Nothing I'm saying to you and nothing I've said so far is based upon your acceptance of Christianity. This is just showing contradictions in the way we think about morality and human beings and anthropology. That's all it is. And I don't think any self-respecting, I think people who are atheists or Hindus or whatever you are, if you claim some sort of morality that grants human rights, you should not find that. I do not see how you find this acceptable. And, um, and, but having said all that, he does bring the Bible into it. And so I'm going to follow him there and we're going to talk about the Bible a little bit. So let's hear what he has to say about the Bible. Um, the only verse in the Bible is Exodus 21:22 that says if men are fighting and injure a pregnant woman so she miscarries, they shall pay a fine. That would be an involuntary abortion. It's certainly something none of us would agree with. But there is not a single word or suggestion or anything about the embryo or fetus in the Bible. We just have to start from our own ethics, as indeed um, Stephanie has done um, very um, eloquent, eloquently. So there's nothing about, first of all, let's take that first issue. Now, you, listen, you want to see somebody get steel manned? I'm about to steel man Dr. Potts because he didn't even actually make as strong of a case as he could have made from this passage. He says the only thing that's said about this is in Exodus 21, um, verse 22. It's actually Exodus 21, 22 through 24. And it says this, and if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further injury, he shall surely be fined. Now, remember, there's a miscarriage and he's fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, what he said about this is the only thing in the Bible about this is if two men are fighting and this woman miscarries, then, you know, he's got to pay a fine. And then he moved on. Like, that's all the Bible says. First of all, it's not all the Bible says about the subject. But secondly, the case that pro-choicers make and why he likely knows about this passage, because it comes up anytime a pro-choicer wants to make a case from the Bible, along with a couple other passages. But I'm going to deal with the ones that were the one that was raised here is because there's actually more the pro-choicer wants to say about this passage. They want to say, okay, now this woman miscarries, right? So the child has died. And then directly following in the same passage, you have an expression of justice, of mosaic justice, which is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, yada, yada, yada. But life for life. So the pro-choicer wants to say, we're trying to figure out what God thinks, right? About the, uh, about the unborn. Well, if life for life justice is what's going on here, and as a result of this fight, a child dies, if God thinks that that child is um, a human being, a person in the womb, then what that means is the man should die, whoever's responsible, right? Because that's life for life. But since it just says that the man would have to pay a fine, whatever the husband says, um, and then if there's anything else further done, then it will be life for life. Eye for eye. That proves that this child in God's eyes is not a human being or a person in the womb. Now, 
That is to steel man somebody. If you ever have been looking in YouTube worldview discussions for someone steel manning someone else, this is it. I took his argument, which was incomplete and took you all the way. Now, is that right? Is what he said right? He said it's a miscarriage. Interesting that whenever pro-choicers want to make that point, they go to the King James Version, which still doesn't exactly give them what they want. It says, so that her fruit depart from her. Now, biblical language is not unusual to think of the fruit of a woman's womb being her child. Um, but I'll, I'll give you that that might be somewhat ambiguous, right? The fruit depart from her. Well, is that fruit a person, a human being or what? Okay. Uh, and, uh, but here's the further question depart from her. Does that mean miscarriage or not? Does that mean miscarriage? Well, the new King James version actually expresses it differently. It says if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, Yet no harm follows. He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And then you get, he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay. So miscarriage or premature birth? Well, the NIV has it and she gives birth prematurely. The New King James has it. She gives birth prematurely. Now, why is this the case? Why, why? And by the way, the ESV echoes the KJV with her fruit depart from her, which is ambiguous. Well, the word for miscarriage is yatsa and literally means to come out. Hence the reading of the KJV and the ESV translations. Her, her, her fruit departed from her. It came out. Contextually, the meaning is usually in relation to live birth, as in Genesis 25, 25. The first came out red all over like a hairy robe, and they called his name Esau. That is clearly talking about a live birth. We know the story of Esau. Esau did not die. It wasn't a miscarriage. Esau lived for many, many more years. We're actually right there in our Genesis series right now dealing with Jacob and Esau. So Esau lived for many more years. This was, this was not talking about a miscarriage. Now, if Moses wanted to convey the idea of miscarriage, it seems to have been a better word at his disposal. Moses uses another word for miscarriage just two chapters later when he says in Exodus 23, 26, none shall lose her young by miscarriage or be barren in your land. The word used here is shakol and is often translated as miscarriage in modern translations. So that the word that is often that he could have used, he didn't use. And the word that he did use, yatsah, is actually used by the same author to refer to a live birth. So, and, and actually, if you think of it as premature birth, this actually makes more sense of the passage. Now, now listen to it again from the New King James, which, which says premature birth, and see if that doesn't fit more nicely. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, i.e. the child doesn't die or anybody else's, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, like maybe the, the child is hurt worse or dies or somebody else does, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That makes better sense contextually. It makes better sense of what, how the author uses that word. And it makes better sense of why he didn't use the word that obviously refers to miscarriage that he could have used that is elsewhere used. Okay. Now that on top of the committees of scholars that come together, that give us in the new King James and the NIV, uh, 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 
premature birth rather than miscarriage. So this, even steel manning his case, it still falls apart fabulously. Now, he said something else, too. He said that that's the only place in the Bible where the unborn are mentioned. Is that true? Well, it may not refer to them in modern medical terms, but there are places where the Bible is clearly talking about the unborn and clearly speaks of them as persons. For example, in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 44, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Now, it doesn't matter whether you think this story is true. He made the claim that the Bible doesn't speak anywhere else about the unborn like that. It clearly does. Here we have a child in the womb who is being described as a person leaping for joy. So the Bible does say something else about it. But that's not all. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5 is famously used in this context. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So um, God formed him in the womb and obviously has plans for this child and, and has a future for them. But God formed this child in the womb. It was obviously God thought of this as a person. Uh, lastly, Job 10, 2. And eight through nine, I will say to God, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? God molded him like clay. Where? Obviously in the womb. This is un the unborn was molded like clay by God, knitted together by God, plans for this person by God, uh, leaping in the womb. Right. This is this. These are the this is the language of personhood. The, what does the Bible think about the unborn? That they're persons, that they're children, that they're babies. That is clearly what the Bible teaches. And so I think that that's very, very important when you come to this. So he couldn't have uh, messed this up more spectacularly. He didn't even give the best pro-choice case he could have from Exodus 21. I gave it. But they, but his point and my point as a pro-choicer both fail. And the Bible doesn't say what he what he what he thought that it did. Okay. Now, another interesting thing that happened in this debate that I want to point out um, is that he, um, she asks him, what if, because his, he has a benchmark and he says that most abortionists do. They have a benchmark where after this point, after this many weeks or whatever, I'm not going to do it anymore. Okay. For him, that's 12 weeks, something magical between 11 and 12. You know, one of the most effective things that can be done with a pro-choicer is get one of those graphs that shows embryonic development by the week and point. So they say 12 weeks, then point to the one right before 12 weeks, 11 weeks and say, what's the relevant difference between these two? They won't be able to tell you because it's going to look almost exactly the same. And of course, on the sled, you know, thing, remember size, level of development, degree, uh, environment, degree of dependence. These are things you can run on already born persons. And if they say, well, okay, fine, 11 weeks. Well, what's difference relevantly between 11 and 10, right? Some people will come up with something like, well, there's a certain point where they can feel pain. And by the way, that happens very early. There's a certain point at which they have a certain cognitive development. 
And that's when they're a person. Okay, fair enough. But understand that is you're guessing now. That is a decision you made as a fallible human being subjectively. How do you know that's actually when a, 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 an embryo achieves personhood? And since you don't know for sure, you're guessing and you're guessing with life and death. You should always err on the side of caution with these things. But anyway, she asks him at some point, let's say at, at 11 weeks. So this is still under your thing. You do an abortion in 11 weeks. Okay. What if it's, what if I came to you and had a, ch- or a woman came to you and had a, ch- had, and knew that it was a, f- a female um, embryo, whatever, a female baby and asked you to perform an abortion because she didn't want a female. And he said, I, well, let's just hear what he has to say. Let's hear what he, just because it's a female, there's nothing wrong with me, nothing wrong with anything else. I just don't want a baby female. So I want an abortion. It's under 11 weeks. You believe in pro-choice stuff. What are you going to say about that? Here we go. I'm, I'm very intrigued by this position, though, because if abortion in your mind isn't wrong up to 12 weeks, and if the fetus at that stage and even the earlier embryo, let's say it's six weeks, um, is not uh, a preborn child, as I've been referring to it as, if that's the case, why wouldn't you do an abortion for reasons of sex selection? Um, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm emotionally not sort of comfortable with that um i mean Uh, first of all why why aren't you comfortable with that you might think that's obvious but it's not entirely obvious if this is not a person if this is not then then why what's the problem why should you feel any confusion or emotional uh issues or or anything like that there's what's this existential crisis abortion because I want to go on the Mediterranean cruise. But if she did, I probably would try to create a framework in which she could see that was really a rather stupid and selfish thing uh, to, to, to do. If a woman came to me now, listen to me, what he's just said, and we're going to finish it. If a woman came to me and said, I just want to get an abortion because I want to go on this Mediterranean cruise. I, I would try to convince her that was a selfish and stupid thing to do. Why? Isn't it a woman's right to choose? Isn't it still under your threshold that this is uh, that abortion should be morally acceptable at this point? What's the problem? Why the emotional issues here that he admits that he has? I'm not trying to be rude to this person, uh, but this is inconsistent. We're going to get back to why it's inconsistent in just a moment in more detail. But I think it's probably self-evidently true that this should not be an emotional problem for you if this is not a child or a baby or whatever. All right, let's go ahead. So I think a lot of people would have the same common um, response to that. Um, whether you would act on it, um, I don't have an overarching ethic for that. It just, I just feel uncomfortable and wouldn't uh, do it. I, guess- I love his honesty. Uh, listen, Dr. Potts gave us some real honesty. I don't know, man. I don't have like some ethical thing about this. I just don't feel comfortable with it. I'm feeling a little bit emotional about it. I'm not doing it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not doing it. And I think a lot of people would feel that way. Yeah. A lot of people would feel that way. The question is why would a lot of people feel that way? Isn't there something deeper that makes you feel that way? Again, we're going to come back and get more on that in a moment. Question. 
question is, if you're uncomfortable for killing a child because the child is female, why are you comfortable killing a child because the child has Down syndrome? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. Now he's going to answer it. It has to do with cells and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Whether a child is female is a physical thing, right? Whether a child has Down syndrome is related to physical things, right? Why, why is it okay with one, but not the other? And again, you can't say, well, because nature naturally would dispose of some of some of those eggs, fertilized eggs. Okay, but again, nature would do a lot of horrible things that we gladly stop and don't allow to happen as an issue of human rights, because even though nature would do it, we don't like it and we want to prevent it. It's it's it refers to the cells behavior in that case. So I am looking at the the framework in which that in which that child that embryo, that fetus is developing. Your fetus um, is developing in a very, very loving family environment. I would look at it very differently from a woman who's having a child whose husband beats her and who lives on a dollar a day. Whoa, I, whoa, hold on a second. Whoa, do you understand what Dr. Potts has just said? It's become ideological here. I mean, he, well, your child, I'd, I'd let your child live because it's going to grow up in a safe, happy family environment. But if a child's going to grow up in a family where it's a dollar a day, well, let's just kill it. I mean, I'm sorry. Remember, he said killing a baby, killing a child, the, the unborn child, unborn baby is a real concept. In fact, um, I actually have, um, I know that some of you I'm dealing with here would actually appreciate this. Um, but uh, the late, great Christopher Hitchens said, unborn child seems to me to be a real concept. It's not a growth, he says. You can't say that the issue of rights don't come into question. Again, I have all that sourced in the blog article on my website. So it's an unborn child. You're killing a baby. You're killing an unborn child. That's what's happening. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. We, you, we don't we, you don't get to require that we not use the terms for what's really going on because it makes you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable because it's the most wicked thing that we put our seal of approval on as a society today. And it's absolutely barbaric. Um, but let's continue. That discussion and that, and that awareness and knowledge and empathy goes to my brain and makes my nerves make certain decisions. And that's how I make those decisions. I mean, it's, it's, it's useful to discuss them. So basically what he's saying here is I, I don't really know why I'm not hundred percent sure why I, why I function the way I do with some of this stuff. I love his honesty. It's just when you say certain words and I learn certain things, neurons fire, and this is what I do. And this is what I decide. Okay. You're telling us how brains work, but that's not necessarily telling, I mean, you're admitting, I guess that you don't know. Well, that's not good when life and death is on the line. There ought to be clear answers to these things. And if there's not clear answers, you say, well, isn't it okay to say, I don't know? Yes. But you know what you say when you say, you know what you do when you say, I don't know, you don't kill something. If you don't know, um, I, I, others have come up with a similar thing. I learned later, but, but years ago, I thought of this example. Um, if, if you had a booth that was standing between you and the entrance to a building where you really needed to get, but your life isn't on the line, but you, but you want to get into that building. And it's really important. Let's make the stakes as high as you want to for the thought experiment, except for death, uh, your personal death. 
And this is a, like a phone booth here, painted black. You can't see what's inside. And it may or may not include an adult man or woman. Um, and you have a button. You can detonate that booth and destroy the booth. But if someone's inside of it, it's, they're going to die. But then you'll be able to go through the, through the, into the room. Now, you don't know if there's a person in there or not. Would you ever push that button? I don't think anyone in their right mind who's not um, a psychopath would, would push the button. Because they, they might end up killing a person. Okay? Here's the thing. If you're not sure, which, by the way, anyone, you know, on religious grounds, people can make a case. But on irreligious grounds, you're just making a judgment call at what point this embryo should be considered a person. And whatever point you decide, you're guessing. It's like guessing if there's a person in the booth. And that is what you're doing. Now, you don't you think of it differently because, oh, come on, man. Uh, if that was the way it is, then there's all these pro-choice people out here. Uh, pro-choice, that's the enlightened position. Lots of us hold the pro-choice view. Uh, you're saying some things that might make some sense, but I can't look at it. There's got to be something wrong with what you're saying. No, that's what it is. It's very simple. You can't know at what point it's a person. That's a philosophical question. Now, you've seen a good case here that it should be considered a human being and a person all the way back to the moment of conception. I understand that may seem counterintuitive in the early stages, but that's fine. But you can't know. And since you can't know, you are always blowing up a booth that may or may not have someone in it. And that is not okay. And that is so simple. I don't know why more people don't see it. It's as simple as that. The only explanation is people don't understand that or people don't care. I think in the case of a lot of people who had abortions very young, they didn't understand that. In the cases of lawmakers, in the cases of abortionists, in the cases of a lot of those people, I think they've thought deeply about what they're doing. And either they've decided I'm willing to take that risk or I don't care. And I'm not trying to demonize everyone in that, in that, uh, in that field. I'm trying to get you to listen to reason because this is the most wicked thing we do in our society. All right. Now I, I want to, hone in on something why wouldn't he terminate on the basis of sex but he would on the basis of down syndrome why does he feel emotional about this why is this an emotionally charged thing well because well there's two reasons it could be emotional one because of the girl that's experiencing it or the woman that's experiencing it and i get that and that's a whole other discussion right that we have to talk about okay a horrible thing happened that I never, as a man, I don't have to go through that. And I'm recognizing that, but I don't believe any of this garbage about because I'm a man, I can't talk about logic and reason as it comes to abortion. That's, that's postmodern rubbish. But as it comes to this, um, I'm, I'm never going to go through that, but, but, but something bad happened to you. We ought to love that person. We ought to care for that person. We ought to provide them all the care that we can, but it doesn't mean you get to kill somebody because of it. I know this is a hard truth. Um, I've said before, the only caveat, the only one is when the life of the mother is in jeopardy because then it becomes kind of like an issue of self-defense, honestly, but barring that, and, and not even all pro, uh, life people agree with me on that, but I've spoken at pro-life rallies and, uh, uh, right, right to life rallies and things like that last year I did. Um, but, and, and I've, I've seen some agreement on that, but, but here's the thing. You don't get to kill somebody just because something bad happened to you. Now, um, why does he feel this emotional angst about this? Why do people, I think it's because they know this isn't nothing. 
This isn't just a collection of cells. This is a person. You know, this, I never thought that I'd be quoting this person on this channel, but the um, comedian Louis C.K., who actually um, had a scandal in 2018, I think, in the Me Too movement. But he said this in a 2017 Netflix special that actually <laughs> a lot of people in the pro-life community began spreading it around. And a lot of uh, and there were actually some major liberal leftist um, outlets that that would have normally praised him that were totally against him over this but it's because he was saying the hard thing. Uh, and this is what he said. And he meant this all as humorous. But this is what he said. By the way, I, I'm not going to read the, the um, profane language, the, the mature content. I'm just going to slip in substitutes there. But this is what Louis C.K. had to say at the very beginning of this particular comedic act about abortion. It's either taking a dump, it's either the equivalent of taking a dump, or it's killing a baby. It's only one of those two things. And what he's trying to say is, why do you have all this existential angst about it? This worry, this emotional problem with it. If it's just taking a dump, if it's just a collection of cells, if it's not a baby that you're killing, right? It's only one of those two things. It's no other things. If you don't like hearing it's like taking a dump, then you think it's a baby. That's the only other one you get to have, which means you should be holding a sign in front of this place. People hate abortion protesters. They're so shrill and awful. They think babies are being murdered. What are they supposed to be like? Uh, that's not cool. I don't want to be a jerk about it, though. I don't want to ruin their day as they murder several babies all the time. It's 100% killing a baby, he says. It's totally killing a whole baby. But I think that women should be allowed to kill babies. This is what he says. I think women should be allowed to kill babies. That's what I think. They should be allowed to kill babies. Yeah, we get to kill babies. I killed like four babies last night. It has to be one or the other. You know, like when people say abortion should be legal, safe, and rare, why rare if it should be legal? If it should be legal, it's taking a dump. If it should be rare, it's murdering babies. That's it. It's a hard truth, but that's what's going on. The reason people feel emotional angst is because it's, it's not just like, I mean, take him for example. Dr. Potts, if a woman came and was about to, he said, I wouldn't do one. If a woman was like, I just want to get an abortion because I'm going to go on a Mediterranean cruise. I don't want to deal with this. He said he wouldn't do it. He'd convince her that she's being selfish and stupid. Selfish with respect to who? The baby? The child? If she came to him and said, I've got this, if he was a dermatologist, and said, I've got this mole on my neck, and I just want that gone before this Mediterranean cruise. I'm going to be wearing bathing suits. Would he have a problem taking that off? Would he tell her she's being selfish and stupid? No, he'd probably do it, right? Why difference? Why is there a difference with this? Because it's a baby. Because we're killing babies. This is a major problem. Now, I know I've talked much more straightforwardly here than I typically do. But I do, without apology, believe this is a wicked thing that we do. We've got to get our heads around this, people. I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thank <laughs> you.